I know people who, uh, in the last several days, when people were talking about Elizabeth, uh, would veer off and start to talk about whether the monarchy is a good idea or not a good idea, or what should really have a monarchy in these days. And the people who say, wow, she played the role of Queen Elizabeth very well. She did that well, and it was a, not an easy job. To look at everybody's thing that they're doing in the world, as this is the job that they somehow fell into or got born into. And whatever we get born with, if we do it well. Anyway, the piece of religious imagination that I wanted to point out is on the day that she died, uh, immediately popped up on my email, maybe on yours, a picture of a rainbow. Did you see the rainbow? There's a picture of a rainbow over Buckingham Palace. Did you see it? Anybody saw it? Yeah, a few people saw it. Eliani saw it. Victoria, you saw it. And didn't it occur to you? Yes, of course, there's a rainbow up there. Now, who knows if it, first of all, maybe if you were standing three yards over, the rainbow wouldn't have been there. Or if you were, in any event, the mind puts it together and says, okay, the cosmic forces are causing a rainbow. Did you think something like that? That yes, of course, it'd be a rainbow. It's a cosmic event. Uh, it just seemed, yes, okay. There are things that we say, okay, I'll just, uh, I'll just go along with this. And it isn't that I think it's true that some uh, cosmic force put a rainbow in the sky because Elizabeth died. Maybe it's more true that I feel moved that Elizabeth, after a very long life, died. And I'm glad that a rainbow manifested at that point. But the way that the mind takes things and puts them together and says, because of this, this. And maybe they're just happening. And we say, oh, yes, of course, that. I was thinking of different kinds of um, different kinds of things that we say, that we think of as as uh, being together. I was teaching with Sharon Salzberg a week-long retreat a week ago with people in residence. And I haven't taught in a residential retreat in really uh, since the beginning of the pandemic. So it was really interesting. It was held in a, a, a retreat center in San Rafael that used to be the novitiate for the Dominican sisters uh, when they had lots of young girls, young women. Uh, entering religious life. And um, it's been a retreat center now for perhaps 30 years, and Spirit Rock has used it as a retreat center uh, before they had their own buildings. I was teaching there. And uh, what happened? Someone was telling the story. Someone was telling the story of uh, when the... Uh, when the Buddha sat down on the night of his enlightenment, it, the, the story is told that uh, he left his family. I, I really shouldn't come with the end of the story and I and tell the punchline without telling the beginning that uh, once upon a time, there was a person named Siddhartha Gautama who was born to a, uh, a provincial leader, prince, so nobly born and grew up and um, 
decided that when he was grown up, he'd marry. He had a wife. He had a child. Uh, and uh, at some point, he had an experience of being able to, this is a story, go out from his uh, palace grounds. So it's an improbable story that anybody would be already grown up enough to have, be married and have a child and never have gone outside and see regular people outside of nobility. But went out and on his uh, look around in the world, he noticed a sick person, an old person, a sick person, and a dead person. And in this myth, uh, he suddenly realizes that the big complication in life is that people get old, they get sick, and they die. And sometimes they get uh, sick and die, and they're not even old yet. But the, according to the Buddhist myth, he awakened to the fact that once you are born into this world, you are vulnerable to dying, and everybody that you love is also vulnerable to dying. So if it were a modern uh, psychological kind of disposition talking about it, people would say he had a really uh, intuition of uh, existential challenge that once you realize that everything that is manifest has a lifespan, then you get worried about dying. And if you don't get worried about your own dying, you get worried about the people that you love dying. And I think that's true. And I don't think that the answer uh, is necessarily that uh, that you have to re regret being born. In fact, the Buddha goes on to say at some point that this is a very precious life and you have to take good care of it. But you have to learn to, to endure the losses that you have in your life. That's really the whole of the Buddha's lessons, that you can, in fact, know that life is um, time limited and still be able to embrace it and rejoice in it and be productive in it and be connected in, in it. And hopefully really develop your own consciousness so that you're not self-preoccupied and you want to take care of other people. So you don't only become a mature person able to take care of themselves, but you become a wise person whose um, uh, attention is focused on who needs what help based on the awareness that helping other people in this life of one challenge after another is the happiest thing to do. That's really the whole of Buddhism. That really, I couldn't stop today's class at that. That there's a way, he said, to be uh, at ease in uh, a world that really, you can't count on it. That, that you can't, when you say to somebody, I'll see you next week, it's an actuarial guess. You probably will see them next week if you usually do. But you don't know. So we live on actuarial guesses. I mean, insurance companies write life insurances because on actuarial guesses, they know how long you're probably going to live. And when that in that myth story where the Buddha went out and became aware of he saw an old person hunched over and walking and a sick person really suffering and a dead person all looking dead, he also saw uh, a monk walking along in this myth, 
and the monk's face is serene and uh, at ease. And he read that as a message that said, it's possible to know that life is temporal, that everything arises, passes away, that you're going to have to deal with loss all of your life in little ways. If you get to live long, you'll have to do that. A lot of times you'll lose everything that's dear to you. Uh, but life is a temporary affair. I purposely said those words, a temporary affair, because I've been reading and rereading this book called The Temporary Affair by David Radden. David Radden is the um, uh, Roshi of the Ithaca Zen Center. I, I'm, I'm, and he's my age, more or less. And I'm particularly interested in him because his sister married my cousin. <laughs> and I found that out quite, uh, quite accidentally. Um, his sister married my cousin's wife, but here he is, David Radden, and he's been a, he came from an Orthodox Jewish family in New York, and he's the, uh, uh, the Roshi of the Ithaca Zen Center. And it's a lovely book. Uh, and it's just out, and he's in his mid-80s. Um, but the, the, the point is that as long as you've got a life, that uh, it's not a bad thing that it's temporal. As a matter of fact, if you know that it's temporal, you'll pr probably use it well and not uh, squander it, be present for it, and do what you can. And if you know, actually, that it's temporal for everybody, then you're likely to really be on the lookout to try to make it comfortable for everybody, become really a kind-hearted person. Anyway, that image of the Buddha uh, that he got out of his castle and he went out and he saw this, and he did not go back to his wife he uh, and child, that he said, I now have to figure out how do you get a mind that can grapple with the fact that anything that you invest your heart in makes you vulnerable to loss. And the earliest, earliest Buddhism is really sounds like when you read it, it sounds really not life affirming. Don't connect to something. Don't make people dear to you. One of the lines from the early teachings is anything that is dear to you causes pain because you can lose it. Well, uh, that's a very early teaching, and uh, the the other side of it is that we could lose anything that, and will, in most cases, lose what's dear to us. But the slightly developed continuation of that in in the evolution of Buddhism is that you can do it. That everybody does that. We all have the same. We all we all have the same task of getting used to the fact that even though life is beautiful and wonderful and spectacular and amazing that it's got a lot of serious challenges and the most serious challenge is losing people losing ability losing one's personal health and that the promise of paying attention is not like it's a a a, a guarantee of long life but it's a guarantee of enough wisdom to be able to say, well, this is what's happening, and let's see what happens next. What can I do as long as I'm here? So that's really like the overview of Buddhism. But it has these stories 
that are really interesting. Like, I don't think the Buddha went out one night and that he didn't know as an adult man with a child and a wife that there were that regular people died, uh, even if his mother and father had not died before. It's clearly a mythical story. Didn't go out of his palace until he was 28 years old or something. But it's better as a myth, you know, in a certain way. Or maybe you don't think it's better as a myth. But that story you can remember because probably you can remember the story, finding the first big loss that you had in your life or that you knew about in your life. I see some people doing yes, yes, yes. Somebody died in your family and you saw your parents cry. Maybe your grandparents died and your parents cried. At some point in a growing up child's life, begin to see, uh oh, this is one of the things that people have to do. And one hopes that uh, if you're surrounded by people who say, yes, this is terrible and I am bereft and I'll be all right, then you learn that it's okay. The Buddha's story, though, is what I wanted to go on a little bit because I want us to do a little bit of a meditation to go with it. Is that in that, the end of that very story is that uh, he did not go back home to his son and to his wife, which many modern people question and uh, don't like so much that uh, he really abandoned his family. It's not a, uh, it's not something, anyway, it's a questionable thing. But anyway, in the myth, he abandons his family and becomes a monk. And he says, I'm not, uh, I'm not giving up on figuring out how do you do that? Even if you know what's true, how do you still decide, okay, I'm going to stay in this life? And in the story, he does six years of training with one monk and another six years of training with somebody else. And then he goes to a particular place in Bodh Gaya, which is still a tourist place. People go there to worship, to be there. And presumably he sat down on a certain tree. And he says, according to the story, uh, I'm not going to get up until I figure it out. How do you make a mind that can deal with loss and can actually be all right with it and say, this is a temporal affair, this life. You don't know when it's going to end and how. But nevertheless, I'm going to love it and do something in it and make a difference in it and be available to take care of other people in it. And when he sits down, if you've seen, you've probably seen icons of the Buddha sitting. The one that you often see is the Buddha sitting cross-legged. Uh, and he's got one of his hands like this in this mudra. And he has his fingers on the ground in front of him like that. And he sits down under a tree. And in the story, the, uh, the sky is filled with all kinds of, um, of the arrival of troops. Like in the pictures, there are actually mythical figures on horses and uh, any kind of uh, a mythical army of mind disturbers, uh, of frightening events. 
And he says, I see you there, Mara, which is kind of, we would call it a devil or a bad spirited thing, a bad spirited thing. The, that this, this evil spirit is thinking, I see the, the, uh, Siddhartha Gautama is sitting down to really see through how do you get out of suffering in this life? And I'm going to really upset him so he can't figure it out. So in the pictures of it, which are lovely, I mean, they're children's coloring books. You see horses and spears and riders and they're throwing their bows and arrows and they're shooting him and throw and throwing spears and uh, attacking the Buddha to keep him from being able to concentrate his mind. And he's not moved. He says, he says, I see your forces, Mara, and I am not moved. And he sits with this mudra of his hands on the ground. I'm going to figure it out. And in the story, the, the forces of Mara, the forces of evil, then come back in the form of erotic images to, so to upset his mind and distract him so he can't concentrate and figure it out. We, you know, we sometimes could get upset and confused by being afraid or angry at somebody, but we can get upset and confused by being erotically seduced into thinking about or doing some um, inappropriate uh, erotic behavior. So here comes Mara in that other form, and he's still sitting with his mudra and uh, and saying, I see your forces, Mara, and I am not disturbed. And I frequently tell classes that when I tell them that story, I say, when I sit down to meditate, I say, to, I sometimes put my fingers down and I say, this is it. I'm not getting up until I'm lightened, just as he said. And usually when I say that, the people that are in the room with me, they all laugh. Ha, ha, ha. Like, yeah, you, uh, uh, you actually think you're like the Buddha and you can say that and it can happen. I said, no, I, don't, I actually don't think that it's hubris. Like, like, where do you come off doing that? Certainly you're not as cultivated a person as Siddhartha Gautama was after six years of, of practicing with these three, these two very famous meditation teachers. His mind was ready to get enlightened, but certainly, Sylvia, you know, your mind is not. But I think to myself, why not? Why shouldn't I sit down and say, I'm sitting here training my mind to keep itself steady, whatever is trying to distract it. That's a nice habit to have. And to say, well, you know, excuse me, I don't think I can have any good reason, really great results, but maybe a halfway result. Why not? So I'm not getting up until my mind is serene and focused. Does that make sense to you? Why not? So you don't sit down and say, well, you know, maybe I'll feel better, maybe I won't. <laughs> Nobody marks you on too much hubris, too much presumptive behavior. So I thought we could sit a little bit with that mental mudra and see if we can make our minds steady and if they're different in a little while. This is one of two different approaches to steadying the mind and discerning what's true. 
But I want to stop and have a sit after each of those approaches so we can do this in um, in a sequence. So I'm going to push myself back a little bit so that I can, in fact, put my feet up. I can imagine, you know, here I am putting my feet up and I'm going to do that mudra as well. So people might be thinking, aha, if you're going to get enlightened, use five minutes, why not? Maybe. Uh, I am going to put my fingers down like that on the ground. And I am going to say, for all of us, may I, in the next 10 minutes, 15 minutes, may I, in the next 15 minutes, be as present as I possibly can to the coming and going of my breath. I don't need to think about anything else during that time. Nothing needs to get done right now. I need to train my mind to be tranquil and alert. That's a mantra that I like to bring up from time to time. Like it's giving instructions to the mind. Let's be tranquil and alert. It means let's not fall asleep. Let's be tranquil and alert. Feeling the breath come in and out. Some people like to feel their breath around their rib cage or at their nostrils. I actually most like to feel my breath around my whole body because I can feel my whole body gets bigger and then relaxes back down, gets bigger and relaxes back down. And bigger and then it relaxes back down. What I'll try to do is I'll feel bigger and then relaxing down, bigger and relaxing down. I'll try to feel that in my whole of my body. And if I keep those notes going in my mind, because if I become untranquil, then I have to notice that too. If I become sleepy and I'm not alert, notice that too. So I'm going to vary between saying, filling up and relaxing back down, breathing in, breathing out, between noticing the breath 
and the out, in breath and the out breath. And by noticing the presence or absence of tranquil and alert, every once in a while I'll take the attention from the breath and I'll say, in addition to that, tranquil and alert. Tranquil and alert. And I'll hope that that intention in the mind registers in my body and mind so that I feel myself to be tranquil and alert. Okay, we'll sit for 10 minutes now.
I think it would be great if um, three people wanted to say something about how was that experience and what did you think about that mudra and did things change from you? And um, what did you discover? What did you learn in those 12 minutes? All right, Lisa Marie. I learned that that the moments of calm can perhaps be counted as enlightenment. And that while I may probably likely never have a sustained life of uh, light in that state, that those moments are, mean something and they account for something and I can draw upon those. And I certainly do draw upon those in the moments when I'm not so calm. And so when you say, well, I, I won't move until I'm enlightened. That's possible to have a moment of enlightenment, I think, if we call it being calm and at ease. Perfect. I'm, uh, as I'm sure everybody else would be perfect as well, but that was a perfect um, a phrasing of uh, a, a, an immediate insight into the third noble truth. The first noble truth being that life is continually challenging and uh, and requires uh, uh, what do they call it? Uh, like refresh your website, refresh your website. It requires constant refreshing. Uh, and uh, the second uh, noble truth being that the cause of suffering is not uh, is not particularly the difficult things that come up, but the difficult responses, the maladaptive responses we make to what comes up. And the third noble truth is that peace is possible in this very life and in this very body, in this very moment. And that was what you said. In those moments, I'm enlightened. Nothing is pulling at my mind. And to think of those as those are really free moments that we have quite a lot. Because I don't know if I'll ever get enlightened in this life. But you know, the operative word that you use, which is so wonderful, I think, is sustained. It's hard to sustain, you know, that, uh, but I could sustain maybe a tranquil mind for the next 10 minutes. And uh, what happens from that is we are habituating the mind to a tranquil, to, to a state of tranquility that I would much rather having been either born or genetically inclined or whatever, to being excessively fretful about things. This might go wrong, that might go wrong. Uh, I don't think I'm going to get entirely a brand new mind because I'm not even, I'm not going to get taller and my hair is not going to change color or my eyes. I mean, that certain stuff comes with genes. But that I could know that it's possible to be peaceful in this life, in this very body, in this very situation is great. So thank you very much. Somebody else. We'll go, we'll do something else after. But really, not so much what happened, but what did you learn? That was very good. What did you learn? Eliani, there you go. Hello, this is just so wonderful. I became aware of a distinction between alertness and um, adrenalized. And I don't, I'm, I'm not prone to fretting, 
and I am prone to getting into action. Um, and it was interesting to have both those words, the tranquil and the alert. The tranquil I'm accustomed to in a meditative state, the alert I'm less accustomed to in a meditative state. And to really um, experience uh, uh, in the body that mm-hmm. distinction between alert and getting into action, you know, like that. That was really helpful. I'm very happy about that. Thank you very much, because that is a distinction. Uh, that, And I think it's a crucial uh, retrain the mind from, uh, uh-oh, I have to do something, to, uh-oh, my mind is now startled, so let's think a second, or let's figure it out before we jump into action. Think of how many things we say and uh uh that we say oh, i can't believe i said that or i can't believe i wrote that the in between the email comes in that says you did this wrong and i really don't like what you said at that meeting or da 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 and then we in between reading that and sending an email back and saying well just for that da 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 da, da not doing it and saying <laughs> okay I could have this feeling and i could wait and i could be tranquil and uh, alert and think it over. I'm very fond of telling people that the uh, principal um, training mantra that I like is think it over. Let's mm-hmm. see what happens next. So you wait until you do the next. So a certain amount of just recognizing that state of mind. I remember sitting in, um, I just popped into my mind, sitting a while uh, some, at some point in the last several years. I was eating breakfast by myself, quietly enjoying the breakfast, and I was uh, sitting uh, with my phone, as we so many of us have the phone, on the table in front of me within arm's reach, And uh, but I'm having breakfast quietly, not listening to anything, not watching anything, having breakfast, feeling good, tasting the food, enjoying it, and thinking about this or that. And all of a sudden, I have a thought about something or other in my life. And I have a thought, oh, I'll have to call Jack and tell him about that. And in the very moment, I thought I have to call Jack. And I saw the phone in front of me. My arm shot out to the phone. And I said, wait a minute. I, I Not I have to call him this second. I want to call Jack. And I'll first, first finish the breakfast. And then I'll call Jack. Be in the habit of... It, of not adding imperative. Imperative is a great word to think about in terms of training the mind, because I think the mind is relaxed and at and it ease when it doesn't have a, 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 um, a, a tremendous factor of imperative. I have to do it now. Things have to change now. I have to make that phone call now. I have to cross the next thing off my list off now and give the mind a chance to breathe in between making the next decision. Does that make sense to people? Because I think for myself, that seems to be a really important thing. All right, I'm going to say a little bit more then, and then we'll sit a little bit more. I like it much better, I'm finding, if we talk back and forth. It's very good than uh, just me listening to me all the time. We'll talk a little bit more about religious imagination. Um, 
So we want to talk about that. The fingers down. We want to talk about that. That uh, rainbow must have been because Elizabeth died. Uh, in the, the Hebrew calendar, we are in the last lunar month of the year. Uh, many of you know whether or not you're in, uh, you were born into or became into the Jewish tradition that uh, uh, somewhere in, in September, late September, uh, comes the holiday of Rosh Hashanah, which means the beginning of the year, the head of the new year. So it's just like we go November, December, January, February in the uh, worldwide calendar. Uh, the, the Jewish liturgical calendar is built around another 12 months. And by the way, it doesn't have, um, that calendar does not have a, a leap year where you put an extra day. Every seven or eight years, you have a leap month. And it catches up with uh, with itself. So it's every six or seven years, you have the equivalent of January, February, March, March, April, May. You just do March twice, more or less. It's about the third month into the year. It works out. But I'm talking about religious imagery because this is the part of the year. You know how when it comes to... Uh, in uh, December, after Christmas, or maybe along in that time of the year, people are thinking about making New Year's resolutions, like on the first of the year, I'm going to give up sugar or give up caffeine, or I'm going to start sitting for an hour every day, at least a half hour, or I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And you make a plan for a New Year's resolution. Um, I think there's a feeling that comes with some uh, imagery about it's new and it's a beginning. You know, that if I have a feeling that I want to stop drinking caffeine or uh, I want to start uh, having a sitting practice of two hours a day, I don't have to sit till, I don't have to wait till January 1st to do it. I could do it tomorrow. I could start today. You know? But there's something about starting fresh. I think because we get new calendars or we get new we turn over a new page. In the days when we used to buy calendars, they were beautiful. We don't nobody buys calendars anymore because it's all on their electronics. But every year you got a new one and it was right there on the wall and you turn the pages. And there's something about starting over. I've been thinking about that. I wanted to think about that and tell me later what you think. Because I think that there's something that that picks up the heart about it's a new something. Uh, uh, babies, I think, of all species are so uh, inspiring to look at because you think here's a brand new fresh thing starting all over again. So that uh, when, uh, when, uh, when I am feeling in a not such a if I'm feeling in a disappointed or a not great mood, I I look at photos of my uh, great grandchildren, and I feel great because here they are, young, and their lives are beginning, and I have a sense that mine is coming near to the end somewhere. But here are you know people every day are borning and dying and borning and dying, and he's beginning new things. It's maybe a, a leap of imagination, but I love books of pictures of um, uh, puppies, puppies of all different, I think a lot of people are smiling, 
dogs of different breeds have puppies that look like them. And as adults, they might be not the most attractive dogs. And well, everybody has different feelings about what's an attractive dog. But puppies always look fantastic. And I think because they look like miniature, what they're going to grow into. And there's a sense of starting fresh. Here's a new one. Do you have a feeling? Am I talking into the air or the Put up your hand if it makes sense, that makes sense to you. Like puppy pictures. Who likes puppy pictures? There you go. <laughs> There's something about it's new and it's fresh and I'm starting again. And um, so in the, the uh, in the Hebrew calendar, when we come to the finish of this month, we're in the second half. Today is the 18th day of the last month of the calendar year. And in several weeks, it'll be Rosh Hashanah and it'll be the new year. You might want to know that the world is, according to that calendar, 5,782 years old. Now, it will be 5,783 years old after its next birthday. Now, and uh, the liturgy for that day includes things like today is the birthday of the year, year of the world. And not many people that I know about in the Jewish world actually think that's literally true. I mean, there's a lot of reason to think that the world is way older than that. But Nobody says, I'm not singing this psalm or singing this hymn because it's not true. It's like singing happy birthday, dear world, and it's just part of the liturgy. You don't have to believe it to have the sense of, okay, now I'm really starting again. Not so much uh, the, the, uh, the exercise that I like very much that has to do with this time of year is that you're going to start fresh with no leftover un mended uh, relationships. So you're supposed to, in these weeks coming up to that time, think about where are the unmended relationships in my life and um, and make some effort to mend them. And the liturgy of those particular days, just around the time, uh, is full of uh, the gates of repentance are open just Fix up what make make right all of the unfixed relationships in your life, and the liturgy is very inspiring about yet yeah, those gates of repentance where you can start all over again are starting to close. Now they're starting to close. Hurry up! They're starting to close. I don't think there are gates of repentance, but I love the poetry of that, and I love the fact that when I refix or when I fix a relationship that's not good, it doesn't have anything to do with having been born into the Jewish tradition. This is true for everybody. When you fix up something that wasn't good, you feel better. Uh, how many people think you feel better? I did. <laughs> I'm asking so much today because I just finished teaching a webinar and a webinar is so hard because you don't see the people. And you talk to however many people, but you don't know if you're talking to a wall or what. It's so lovely to see people that you're talking to. 
And I discovered in uh, in my life, because that liturgy is part of the background of my wallpaper of my mind, that since I thought, okay, I'm in the home stretch, all of a sudden I'm remembering things. I should call this one. I should fix this one. And it's not like I said, okay, you really have a lot of bad relationships. I don't. I'm in a pretty good place with everybody. But all of a sudden I'm remembering this and I'm remembering that. So I'm I'm really bringing it up because I want to say that I'm interested in religious liturgy, whether or not I believe the story. That um, and the same is true of of Dharma and the Buddhism stories. I don't know that Siddhartha Gautama didn't get to see old age, sickness, and death before he was 28 years old. But I love the story that he wasn't uh, startled by the existential dilemma that we all live in. People get startled of that existential dilemma. Uh Uh-oh, what am I going to do? Life is finite and people die. When people are children and a parent dies or a sibling dies, that's a really important thing to happen to a child and that they're not, we can't protect people from that. But to say they grow up with different kinds of sensitivities and sometimes different kinds of fears. And my own self. I think really what I meant to say is I like the religious imagery of all the religions I know some substantial amount about because they all say you'll feel better when you unburden yourself of remorse and regret. And you make amends. I've never been a Catholic, but my Catholic friends tell me that uh, the the practice of confession inspires them. You know, I don't actually, and they don't believe that there's some entity that's listening. But to be able to say to somebody that you trust, I did this mistake, and have them say, people make mistakes. Try not to do it again. Puts it in a context where the mind it does not stay or become dispirited. Does that make sense to you? That I've been looking again this week at a book by Houston Smith called um, Religions of the World. And it's probably one of the first um, religious texts, books about religion that I read about 40 years ago. Houston Smith, of course, is dead now, but he was kind of the dean of religious thinking. And the religions, um, I guess it's called the religions of the world. It got renamed. Anyway, Houston Smith. And he said, this is what religions have in common. And he taught, and in his book, it was about uh, Buddhism, Hinduism, Taoism, Christianity, Judaism. And he said, what they all have in common is every one of them has a list of rules. Oh, The World's Religions by uh, Houston Smith. Thank you very much, Carlita. Uh, It used to be said that, oh, I know, it used to be called The Religions of Man. And that would be an inappropriate. (laughs) World religion is great. and I was fortunate enough to hear him teach several times. He was teaching until he was very, very old. Um, and he said, everybody has a list of things that says, 
that says don't do this that uh, uh whether they're the ten commandments or the this commandments or the that but he said every religious tradition that has endured has a list of things that it says don't do this don't do this 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 and this uh, and his point is that every religion has figured out that in a social grouping, when you come together, people are sometimes tempted to do the, to do things that cause pain to other people. That And they cause pain to other people because they harm them in some way, or they knowingly or unknowingly, or they uh, take what isn't theirs, or they speak in a way that causes pain or they uh, hurt their body in some way uh, or they don't have good control over their mind so they act heedlessly and uh, he said they all have the same ones because human beings are all set up to make mistakes in that way that's what human beings do but what Houston Smith said uh is more or less, these are the things that you have to remind people about because there aren't any precepts that say, uh, I undertake the precept to um, not eat lollipops on the Sabbath or something. Don't have precepts about that because nobody is, because that if you're dead, nothing bad would happen. They're talking about things that, impulses that human beings have Impulses like the first one, which is you might get, you might be angry and harm somebody, and you might be sloppy and harm somebody by not being thoughtful with word, thought, or deed. You could harm people quite easily if you didn't think it over. So it's really a precept to pay attention and be careful based on the wisdom that people are, uh, people are trying their best to keep their minds. Uh, calm and unfrightened. So it's a way of saying in a generic way, I undertake the precept to abstain from taking that which is not freely given. It means don't be coercive in a sneaky way about what you're saying. Like, um, um, if I am really tired, I remember thinking about this. Uh, I, I caught myself several times maybe more than several times. I was married to my husband 66 years when he died two years ago. So we had a long life together. And I can remember discovering that uh, I would sometimes say, oh, I'm so tired. I had such a long day today. And trying to set him up to say, you know, uh, uh, don't make dinner, I'll make dinner, or let's send out for dinner, or I'll wash up the dishes where it would have been much better if I would have said, you know what, sweetheart, I really don't want to make dinner or clean up. What do you suggest we do? That would be straightforward. That's not um, that's not taking what isn't freely given. That's setting up the other course of speech. I undertake the precept to abstain from incorrect speech, which of course means from telling things that aren't true. Also, it means telling things in a way that they might be true, but wouldn't be helpful. Truthful and helpful is what the Buddha said, that you don't have to say every single thing. There was a long period in psychology 
when the in thing was to let it all hang out and tell everybody exactly how you felt about them. And it didn't work out so well. It has passed in in psychology. It was very trendy in the 1980s, but not anymore. Because you hurt people if you just don't think about what you're saying. And to take the precept to abstain from incorrect sexual expression. You know, people who are monks take a precept to um, not be sexual. But uh, for people who are not monks, uh, sexuality and uh, uh, is part of a, a person's life. But as we all know, um, not always expressed in a way that doesn't cause pain take advantage of other people, exploitive or... And I undertake the precept to uh, keep my mind free of intoxicants of all sorts. So truth to tell, this is my annotated uh, layperson's precept. But the only thing that's exactly as it says in the regular, not annotated in the regular liturgy, it says, may these precepts be the cause of happiness. And I think that's the important thing to really notice that the wisdom in it is that the principal beneficiary of morality is oneself. I mean, it's very, I mean, of course, the world is, is better off and you're, the people that you're in contact with are better off if you behave morally and, you know, people like you and they're not afraid of you. But I think the principal beneficiary of morality is your own self, that uh, that you are free from feeling remorse or regret or humiliated or have bad feelings about yourself. I really like to tell people that when my grandfather died and was... Um, he was uh, 98 years old when he died. He said, after I'm gone, there isn't going to be anybody who has anything bad to say about me. And he felt very good about that when he was old. He was very careful not to hurt people. You know, I, since I don't keep a list of what, I, I mean, you know, as you can see, I'm just talking to you. I don't have this all exactly written out. I'm thinking to myself, I can't, I don't know if I ever told you the story of my grandfather and the oranges. Did I tell the story about my grandfather and the oranges? Who knows my grandfather and the oranges? Cindy knows. Judy knows. I have to look on the other pages. No, a lot of people, uh, their picture is not there, so I don't even know. I guess they are there, but not really there. Okay. I can't even ask them. You want to know about the oranges? My grandfather came to the United States in 1909 from uh, Europe, and he couldn't read or write in any language. Uh, and he worked always as a laborer. Um, and uh, I admired him tremendously. He was very kind and very sensitive. And he told me a story about, and at one point in his life, he worked as a, um, on uh, at a gas station 
which then were called service stations. You went and they they pumped the gas for you and they put air in the tires. And uh, so he did that for years, actually. Uh, and uh, he himself did not drive a car. Uh, and I asked him about how come, uh, since he's working in a service station and he knew about cars, I guess he had certain ability as a mechanic with cars, but he never drove a car. And he said, when I first came to the United States, I uh, was here a little while and I was riding a bicycle one day. And I, in, on the bicycle, I bumped into a woman who was carrying a big bag of groceries. And the bag fell on the floor and the groceries fell all over the, the street. And there were oranges rolling all over the place. And he said, I was so upset at having caused that woman pain that I decided I would never ride a vehicle again because you might bump into somebody and cause them pain. So I, when I, over the years, when I've remembered him with his oranges, and uh, people have said when they heard that story, which endeared him to me tremendously, uh, but you know, it was just once, and it was a bicycle, and you know, he said, never mind, it was once. I saw how much trouble you could cause somebody if you bumped into them with a vehicle that I never drove. So anyway, that is a lot of, that is pretty scrupulous, but I love that about him. And I, I really love that he said, when I get old, there isn't going to be anybody that says anything bad about me, that I was, I was also pleased that he didn't have a bad conscience. And I think he was scrupulously careful not to do anything that hurt anybody's feelings. Anyway, that's the story. I really like the idea that um, attention to one's behavior and recognizing that your behavior is not only the cause of other people's happiness, but the cause of your own happiness. So nobody will have anything bad to say about me. means my conscience is clean. And I, I also realized that because it's this time of the year and that liturgy is coming around with now the gates are open if you really bring up whatever it is that you um uh you've forgotten maybe something that you could make amends for i'm not every day getting up and saying i'm doing a scrupulous moral inventory but i am aware that i'm thinking more and more about things that whoa i forgot about that i forgot about that and I'm happy about it. I think that it's a sign for me that human beings are, I, I take it as a sign. And my more correct or my more scrupulous Buddhist scholar friends would say it's not a sign that people are fundamentally good. It's a sign that you're fundamentally good. And so you like to interpret it that way because it matches your interpretation. So that's just a thought. I'd like you to think about that. But the other thing that I wanted to say something about, because then I want us to do another meditation, is I'd like to talk about not only did the Queen die this week and the British get a new prime minister, but uh, it's the anniversary of 9-11. And we just passed that. And there was very little... Uh, that uh, at least I don't I don't watch a lot of television, 
but I didn't see a lot of that around, uh, not even in the newspaper or even online so much. So it's a long time, but still, uh, I remembered that what I wanted to tell you about is that on the day after 9-11, 9-11 was a Tuesday, so 9-12 of that year, uh, there was this Wednesday morning class that you are now sitting in, and me as well. And uh, I was very happy that it was a Wednesday because people were looking for some place to go to sit quietly the day after because reports were still coming up in as the really tremendous devastation that happened on that day. And um, it was just nice to be able to sit quietly with people. We sat at Spirit Rock. It was, of course, open to the public. On the day of 9-11, by that afternoon, the, all the churches that I knew about in uh, Marin County, where I lived, were open for people to go and sit in them if they wanted to and just sit in there and just be in that vibe. Because the vibe of saying, you know, life is hard and let's just, uh, whether I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use the word pray without meaning actually they say liturgy. I want to put my mind in the place of may we come out of this well, may not, uh, you know, may no more people suffer from this, may it all unfold in a way that's okay. And you need to go someplace where it's quiet like that. You can't go on television because it exacerbates it. So there were, in fact, more people in Spirit Rock on that morning. Um, quite full of a whole hall because I think people wanted to sit quietly and be with other people who are touched by it. And I thought to myself, what am I going to talk about? Because what can you say? You know? And I talked about um, I talked about that. I talked about, first, I remember what we did first is I said, who knew anybody there? Do you know anybody who was trapped there or who died there? And I remember that maybe there were a hundred people or more in the room. Nobody knew someone, but people knew someone who knew someone. And so people who knew someone who knew someone talked about it. And I found that talking about it just made it manageable. We can speak about it. It's like an unspeakable thing, but we can speak about it, then other people can speak. And then I remember that after that, we sat quietly for a little while. And then I asked people to say the precepts, the Buddhist precepts that we just were looking at on the screen a minute ago uh, that I rendered on that screen, lay prayer of the precepts, without any um, Buddhist language. But uh, I'm going to recite them again in a little bit when we do the, um, when we meditate again in a minute. Because it was nice to do something it was good. It wasn't nice. It was good to do something where everybody in the room, 100, 150 people said together, I undertake the precept to abstain from harming living beings because you get such a feeling when such a gross, terrible thing happens in the world. 
think, oh, look, the world is terrible. There are people doing terrible things in the world, but there are also people who are prepared to say and undertake the precept to abstain from harming living beings. And if there are a few other people in the world who are kin to you or friends to you or part of your group, then you don't feel alone. You feel really held up by them. It's reassuring to know that people all over the world are going to want to say that with you. Well, in those days, we weren't all over the world. We were just in that room. So we said the, we said the precepts, and I said them slower, and then we sat with them a little bit as a, contempl as a contemplative exercise. And what I discovered since then is that um, if I say those precepts to myself periodically, I don't do it every day, but if I say to myself, I undertake the precept to abstain from harming living beings, and then I just sit there for a little while, that into my mind will come uh, like a reminder. You forgot to call so-and-so. You maybe spoke too peremptorily to so and so. It's like uh, the I, I like to say this. My 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 um, some of my more academic Buddhist colleagues would say you're making up a story because it's your re re religious imagination. But the truth is, I like my religious imagination. It makes me feel good. I like to imagine. That my that my heart is tuned in to doing the right thing, so that when I say uh, I undertake the precept to abstain from harming living beings, it thinks my heart sifts through what's left and finds somebody else that I really could make amends to, or something else that wasn't quite the way I'd like it to be. So it is a moral inventory. And I feel may these precepts be a cause for happiness. So that's what I would like to do. I like to do that. And then I like to first, I'm going to tell you one more story about religious imagination. Maybe two, but we'll see. Um, I'm just looking at all my notes. I would have one more thing that I think about the religious imagination. I think we need it. I remember when I was a child, uh, my father would take me to the planetarium in New York City. Remember the planetarium in New York City is still there. It's called the Hayden Planetarium. It's great. And in the main, one of the main rooms with displays is a room with a solar system uh, on the ceiling. Uh, and the nine rings of what they then considered to be nine uh, planets. I think Pluto has lost its status as a planet now. But uh, all those rings, and here's the Earth in the middle, and all of these planets going around wherever they are. And the further out they are, the maybe the slower they are, but whatever. And I remember standing there and having my father explain it to me that we were on the Earth, on that third planet there going around. 
and that that was all the planets that were around us and that out I said what's outside of that and he said well there are other stars and I said what's outside of that he said well there's just more of it and I said well where is the top of it you know when you're a child and you draw a picture uh, of a of uh, a house and a tree and then you draw a line and here's the the sky is blue Said, but what's on the top? It has to have a top. And he said, no, it doesn't have a top. It's just forever and ever out there. And I remember being unnerved by the fact that we were on a little planet, on a little ball, just in the middle of the vastness of space and something about that. I wanted there to be like something nearer that, or maybe like some sort of... Uh, God system or somebody who was minding the minding this enterprise uh, I, I called life. And my parents, although they liked very much being Jews, were not um, and, and were quite observant about Jewish traditions, didn't believe that it was they didn't believe that the earth is 5,800 years old. They didn't believe that there was a particular God and I knew that they didn't and, uh, they were respectful about people who did, but they didn't, and I didn't either. But I wished that there was something that I could say, so-and-so is taking care of us, because uh, it was more upsetting to think it's just there in the middle of that. And when you say because of this, that, because Elizabeth died, there was a rainbow, because... Um, uh, what was the other example I gave you? Uh, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Uh, I'm going to read you one of them when we finish. But we love to have the idea that there's a reason. And that somebody knows it. But what if nobody knows it? What if it's just this? And which is, I think, really what's happening. The best I can do is be in charge of my own heart. Imagine this, you know, we think we're so important and so teeny tiny and temporal. That would be a good name for a book. Teeny tiny and temporal, that's what we are. So let's sit a little bit and then I'll tell you two stories. Sit in a way that's comfortable for you. Take three consecutive long breaths in and blow it out. Imagine yourself as you are, 
sitting in the middle of your life. You're sitting in the middle of your body. Or around it, or who knows, but your awareness is certainly bodily focused. Here's this body with this mind that operates through it. You're sitting in your house or wherever you're sitting right now. You're sitting in your neighborhood. Your neighborhood is wherever in the world it is. And you're sitting wherever on the planet you are. Sitting almost on the equinox of this year so that everybody on the planet has more or less Equal days and nights. I wonder if that's true. I think it's true. Yeah, that's true. We're sitting in the middle of the solar system. which is sitting in the middle of the universe. And we're temporal, like everything else. For me, there's something very magic to think that all over this globe, in the middle of this vast space, people are borning and dying every minute and moving along between the morning and dying. And each of us is part of that.
And each of us has a neurology that wants to feel soothed and at ease. May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. Think to yourself, I undertake the precept to abstain from harming living beings. Notice anything particular comes up in your mind, write it down. And then close your eyes. Take a breath in and out and say to yourself, I undertake the precept to abstain from taking that which is not freely given.
If something comes up that you want to remember, write it down. And then say to yourself, I undertake the precept to refrain, abstain from incorrect speech and see if something comes up from your about-to-be-conscious mind. And to take the precept to ex refrain from sexual expression that is exploitive or abusive. I undertake the precept to abstain from anything that intoxicates my mind so that I behave heedlessly. May these precepts be the cause for happiness.
May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. Well, open your eyes and look around at all the people in the room that you see. And wish them well. I would love it if somebody wanted to say something about their experience of precepts. as a meditation. Jeff? Okay. Um, the experience of trying to live with the, uh, with the precepts and trying to live that way and the contemplation of living that way seems for me to inevitably lead to this little tiny short phrase, the bliss of blamelessness. Um, uh, I have, I'm, I'm about to be 70 years old, and for a long time, I, I, I'm not proud of it, but it is a fact that for a long time I broke laws for a living. Um, many of these laws have changed, so you can now go to the store and buy what I used to sell. Um, but at the time, it was quite illegal and you know there's a funny thing when you when you don't have an illegal substance in your car you don't get worried you're not very worried about getting pulled over mm. you know and that sort of thing extends all the way through the this the speech action right livelihood etc and so forth the more of these things that you pile up the ease and comfort how much easier it is to be calm and collected and uh so you know i was i was at amravati and one of the things that uh, amaro said to me was why do you think i'm a monk and you know there is this thing if you really give up all of that other stuff you progress to a state of calm that uh, i can see it out there in the distance mm -hmm. um, but i've seen it on the face of people like yourself and that's all the time I should take up because I don't really know anything. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you very much. I actually think that that you know that uh, uh, the the uh, bliss of blamelessness is a wonderful phrase from the Buddha. I think my granddad had the bliss of blamelessness. Uh, there's nobody out there that doesn't have anything bad to say about me. Uh, that. Uh, uh, I think that that uh, the desire to have the bliss of blamelessness increases the more that you become sensitized to how much how true it is the first noble truth that that life is difficult for everyone and that everybody is has their own road to hoe and I think about that in, in crowded places like boarding lounges of um, airplanes you look around and everybody's going somewhere and they're going someplace to do something and you don't know if they're going to their father's funeral or their nephew's wedding or to have 
uh, uh, some important definitive test at Sloan Kettering. You don't know where they're going, but nobody gets on an airplane accidentally, finds themselves in a boarding lounge accidentally. They might be going someplace on a holiday where they think they're going to have a good time. Uh, one of my extremely good friends, who's often on this in, in this call on uh, Wednesday mornings, is about to go to uh, uh, to Europe uh, uh, after now that the pandemic is more or less over, and uh, she and her partner are in a place of not dealing with anybody's illnesses or infirmary, infirmities, they're going to Europe. And, um, you know, if, if they get to go, that's great. And if, uh, if they, you know, and the last time that they thought they were going to go, they went and then something happened and then something else happened and they had to come back and then there was a COVID. So they will... Uh, if things work out, uh, have a holiday that's three years deferred that they are fortunate enough to have been able to wait through. But you never know what's going to happen to anybody tomorrow, really. Um, it's all very, it's all very transient and all very contingent, which is a word I like better. But it's contingent on the whole world. I've, I've decided <clears throat> that my favorite meta phrase is may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering because it's like it covers everybody. And it doesn't mean that may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of troubles because uh, everybody's got them. Oh, look at that. Jeff has put a thing that I said a long time ago. Life is so difficult. How can you be anything but kind? He's quoting me, and I'm happy about that. Uh, I think that's one of the... I quoted somebody that... I, I quoted an unknown source that said that, but it was that unknown source that said that that caused me to go on my first long retreat. So that's it. Life is so difficult. How can we be anything but kind? Oh, there's Joanne. There you are. Okay. During the meditation, I wrote down two things. Flowers bloom, and so do I. Flowers die, and so will I. That's it. That's it. Thank you very much. And so will we all. And what am I going to do? That the one line from uh, what? Are, what are we? What are you going to do with this one wild and precious life, Mary Oliver? What are you going to do with this one wild and precious life? That we're, you know, I think that we're you're, we're calling our friends and saying something good to them and saying, how are you today? And uh, visiting them. And we don't have to do big deals. I, I, I'm beginning to think that all, all of the, um, all of the paramis uh, all our ways of connecting to other people and that the operative word is going to be connections. Let's make connections in this world. I think that I'm, I, I'm so grateful for the technology of Zoom that allowed us over these long last three years to continue feeling at least connected 
in this way. Wait a minute. Now somebody has put in a, an app, something from uh, We Croak, which has a terrible name, but it's a, it's an app. I know about it that reminds you of um, things that, uh, that reminds you that life is temporal. Uh, it's a, sort of a <laughs> startling way to say it, but said something like the balance in life is that we plan for future events a year into the future like vacations, but we don't know that time a year from now is promised to us. Absolutely, we never know. And in moments where I have been, for various reasons, too long to go into now and too complex, everybody has had them, but at times in my life when I felt quite depressed about whatever in my family or about my mind state, I would I would hear everything through the lens of that's a crazy thing to say. If somebody said, I'll see you next week or I'll see you later or I'll see you tomorrow. And I think, how do they know? You don't know. My, when my children would go off to school, they say, I'll see you next week or this or that. We make our whole lives around guesses. And then but we don't know. But that's the only way to do it, really. The last word. I almost, I almost, but didn't get around to or couldn't think of how to do it. Uh, the last, I'm writing it down now in case I do it for next week. The last words that the Buddha is said to have said as he was dying are move into the future with confidence. That's a nice thing to say, isn't it? Oh, who knows what he said? There, there, there. Very, there's a polytext that says what he said in the language that he said it. It was. It has also been translated as "strive on with diligence." Uh, and uh, this was the translation from Andy Olensky. Most recently, is "move into the future with confidence," which I like very much. You like that? And did you think to yourself, how can you do that? Well, how can you not do that? You know, you don't get extra points for saying I'm I'm smarter than that. It's all over. Remember, we started. I said here, the Buddha put down his fingers and he said, I, you know, I'm not moving from here till I'm enlightened. Why shouldn't we move into the future with confidence? We don't have any better card to play. Uh, that really, I don't think. Maybe I'll try to talk about that next week. And look at pictures of puppies. Nobody doesn't think they're not going to make it to grow up. They will. And I, I, you know what I think about? I think about when I have a moment in which I think about the politics are looking very bad, and this is looking bad, and that's looking bad, the water situation, and this situation, and that situation, the political situation. And then I think to myself, Somewhere in MIT or somewhere at Southern Methodist University or somewhere at Georgia Tech, some young scientist is figuring out how to desalinate oceans in a monumental way. And somebody else is figuring out really how to combat the AIDS virus. And somebody else is figuring out how to calm down the political situation in the world. I don't have to be able to do it my personal self. 
but I don't have to get pulled into not be believing that it could happen. In fact, one of my uh, the things that I thought about as we did those precepts is um, I undertake the precept of staying from intoxicants that cloud the mind is I really stop watching the news on TV. It's definitely an intoxicant that clouds my mind. And the tone of voice clouds my mind. And I'm irritable when I'm after I've listened to something. I, they're, 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 alas, they're made to be dramatic so that people will continue to watch them, continue to see the, um, uh, the commercials that are one after another. But, you know, I, I'm really trying to take a vacation from that uh, and do something else. That would be an interesting thing if you want to try between now and next week. I'm back next week. Um, if you are like I am, every time you turn on your computer, the New York Times tells you all the breaking news. But I'm not obligated to open every one of them. That I, I, I'll work on that this week. And I certainly am not obligated to watch the news on TV. So I hope I'll see you next week. And uh, may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. <laughs>